This is Josh Israel. Welcome to the ACO Show, a podcast where we explore the world of value-based healthcare and how one company is trying to use the framework of accountable care organizations to improve the U.S. healthcare system. We thought we should give a brief overview for anyone who doesn't already know what an ACO is. On one level, it's a very simple concept, but all the regulations and details get very complicated very quickly. And I'm Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician by background, but also the leader of adoption and training here at Allidade. We had the opportunity to speak with Sean Cavanaugh, who spent three years leading the Medicare Innovation Center and three years running the Center for Medicare. Sean has the unique perspective of someone who was on the ground at the creation of the idea of an accountable care organization, or ACO, and understands as well as anyone the opportunities and challenges in the U.S. healthcare market. Having Sean as a guest seemed like the perfect opportunity to provide some background on ACOs and the ACO program. It grew out of a basic problem. In traditional Medicare, sometimes referred to as fee-for-service Medicare, a patient can go to any physician they choose, any time that they like, as long as that provider takes Medicare as insurance, and more than 90% of physicians in the U.S. do. That provider can then do essentially whatever test or procedure that they recommend, and they will get paid at the Medicare rate for that service. In a system like that, if you assume that everyone is a rational economic actor, which we often do in these models, the incentive for the medical provider has little to do with patient health. They can get paid for doing things, regardless of whether it keeps the patient healthy. And the incentive is to do a lot of things, to have a lot of visits, order a lot of tests, and even do a lot of procedures. Most people in the medical system are probably caring and honest, trying to do the right thing by their patients. But Medicare is an almost unimaginably large system. It pays out $700 billion a year to medical providers. That works out to Medicare making payments of $80 million every hour of every day. So it doesn't take a lot of unnecessary care to add up to a lot of money very quickly. We all know that yes, there is some fraud in the system as there would be in any huge system with so many players involved, but a lot of what's done are just tests or procedures that don't add any value to the patients. Sometimes it's because the provider doesn't know that it doesn't add value, or maybe the test was already done at a different hospital, but the provider didn't have access to that lab or had to repeat it. Or maybe the patient went to the emergency room when they had health concerns but couldn't reach their doctor after hours or even during the workday. Maybe the patient doesn't know the best way to choose the right specialist and uses one who's more expensive but doesn't provide better care, which costs the system money as well as higher co-insurance for the patient. We could go on with more examples, but maybe the worst part of the system is that most of the healthcare system in America, as it's currently structured, is to provide sick care. One analogy is, we all sit around and wait for a patient to fall off a ladder. When they come into the ER and get hospitalized or need rehab, every provider in that chain can bill Medicare and get paid for it. And there is no one whose job it is to help keep the patient from falling off the ladder in the first place. To make it less of an analogy and more of a reality, in the past, it was up to the patient to make sure they got their flu shot or their colonoscopy when they turned 50. And most doctors would remind patients to get these when they came in for an appointment. But what about the patient who doesn't come in for an appointment? There's no formal incentive to reach out to that patient and keep them on track to get the important preventative care that they need. Those things are bad for patients. And not only that, everyone in America pays for it. It would have been much better for the patient and less costly for the U.S. budget to prevent the flu, to detect the colon cancer at a very early stage. Enter the Accountable Care Organization, or ACO. The basic idea of an ACO is that Medicare calculates how much a given group of patients is expected to cost. If a group of doctors can provide those patients care at lower costs than they would currently be expected, then the doctors get to keep some of that money. The doctors also have to show they keep the patients healthy. You can't just do nothing and pocket the difference. You have to show that they got their flu shots, their blood pressure is controlled, their diabetes is well managed, and other important measures of health. And maybe most importantly, 
Denying patients necessary medical care doesn't save money. At some point, the patient would get sick, go to the hospital, and it's going to be more expensive to care for them than it would have been just to prevent that illness in the first place. So the ACO really is aligned with the patient's best interest. Halliday helps groups of physicians form these accountable care organizations, or ACOs, and helps them try to provide better care, particularly better preventive care. There are a lot of things that go into making these changes, including better use of technology, better coordination with specialists and hospitals, better in-office workflows that address population health issues. How we do those things is the main subject of these podcasts. And that brings us to the interview today with Sean Cavanaugh. Sean is a big deal in the world of healthcare innovation. And even though he's a soft-spoken guy, he's been working at the highest levels of government on healthcare transformation. So he clearly has the ability to take some sharp elbows and stay on message and mission in a world that is not always so gentle and friendly. I think anyone involved in any aspect of value-based care or healthcare innovation is going to learn something interesting from this interview. And as always, thanks to our producers, Aaron Wang and Francis Bentley, and to Tim Andriasich for our theme music. today with Sean Cavanaugh. Sean, thanks for joining us. Uh, my pleasure, Josh. So you are the Chief Administrative Officer at Allidate. So I am. Why don't we start with what that is? I really do two things. I work closely with our policy team. So Allidate is very dependent on public policy, and we've got a great policy team here. And secondly, I run a commercial team. So our ACOs, we try once we enroll them in Medicare, we also try to get them commercial contracts, Blue Cross, Aetna, United, and I work with that team as well. Great. And before that, you were at CMS, which, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, is uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, can you talk a little about what you were doing while you were there? Sure. I had the pleasure of working at CMS for six years. Uh, the first three years, I was at the Innovation Center, which was, at that time, newly created by the Affordable Care Act. And when I left there, I was the deputy director. So. Um, I moved on to what's called the Center for Medicare, which is what, as it sounds, it does all the Medicare rulemaking related to both the fee-for-service and the Medicare Advantage program. All right. And how did that land you here at Allidate? It landed me here in two ways. One was that when I was at the Innovation Center, I was part of a team that helped design the first ACO model, which was called the Pioneer ACOs. And sitting in a room, you know, scribbling away, trying to figure out how this program would work we pretty quickly, several of us, came to the conclusion that, like, you know what? If you were ever to start an ACO, the smart play would be physician-based ACOs. Mm-hmm. Just the math and the incentives and the alignment just seemed to make a lot of sense. You knew that right early on. Oh, yeah. Um, well, not just me. There was a team of us who were looking at the numbers just saying, you know, physicians, if they're particularly primary care physicians, can do more and then benefit under the program where if certain specialists skilled nursing facilities, hospitalists, hospitals, excuse me, need to do less mm-hmm. and then hope to get paid. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like primary care physicians were better positioned. So that was the first seed that was planted. But then when I was at the Center for Medicare, and as I said, I was in charge of all the rulemaking, including on the Medicare Shared Savings Program. And you know, when we would do the rulemaking, and even in between rulemaking, I would meet with people um, from the industry, ACOs around the country, 
different companies that were involved in the ACO space. And I got to know Farzad Mostashari, the founder of this company. I had known him a little bit prior to that time, but got to know him better. But more importantly, I saw what he was saying and writing and Travis Broom from Allidate. And it was definitely the most interesting commentary on the Medicare Shared Savings Program. And frankly, influenced what we did quite a bit. Um, and so when I left CMS, they were one of the first people I talked to. Mm-hmm. Sean, we, uh, we work very heavily in the ACO space, as you know, here at Allidade. Um, but it would be useful, I think, to hear sort of how the genesis of that program came about from your perspective. And, you know, this wasn't just an off-the-shelf thing. This was a, you know, a fairly uh, revolutionary idea um, in a lot of ways uh, to structure a program this way. So could you give us a, a brief history lesson on that? Sure. Well, there are, you know, success has many fathers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, some of the earliest thinkers in this area were Elliot Fisher from Dartmouth and Mark McClellan, um, who's now at Duke. But mostly it was anybody who was thinking about what's wrong with a fee-for-service world um, and the problems with fee-for-service world or that individual providers are incentivized to focus on what they do not really paid or incentivized to coordinate with other providers. And finally, there's no quarterback. There's no one whose job it is to coordinate and care about the whole patient. And so how do you, how do you integrate that into a fee-for-service world? And what they did, what the, the real revelation was people grinding through Medicare data and noticing, hey, Medicare patients see a lot of doctors, but they also tend to gravitate around a core group of doctors. Mm-hmm. And if you could make a deal with those doctors and say, hey, how about you be accountable for these patients? How about you step back and think about the whole patient? We would, we as a program would be willing to share the savings. So um, it's both, it was both conceptual identifying what was wrong with the program, but also the insight that despite seeing a lot of doctors, there seemed to be um, some stickiness with a core group of doctors. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, particularly as we see the ACL program today and where it's um, how it's grown over that time period. And you, having spent so much time on this, can you talk us through your role in that formational policy, like those first policies around uh, ACO development? Sure. Um, first, I appreciate you noticing that it's grown. Like People forget, like it was an academic idea in some papers. It had been, there had been a demonstration at CMS called the Physician Group Practice Demonstration that um, had mixed results, wasn't a smashing success. But when the ACA passed and Medicare Shared Savings Program was created and the Innovation Center wanted to get in this space too, there was a lot of doubt. There was doubt about did doctors and hospitals really want to sign up for this type of model? Did they want to be accountable? Mm -hmm. Um, And on the flip side, could CMS do this or would we screw it up? Um, And so there was a lot of writing and um, thrashing of hands, you know, like, <laughs> how would this roll out? Yeah. And so it's worth pausing and saying, hey, six, seven years later, we are at over 10 million beneficiaries, you know, thousands of providers engaged in this new model. And with the data that just came out of CMS, clearly the program's a success. So, um, but literally, I came down from New York City in February of 2011. I was the 19th person hired at the Innovation Center. There, I think there are three or 400 now. Um, and the notion was, well, there's the Medicare Shared Savings Program. No one knows if it's going to work. It's defined a certain way in statute. 
we're the innovation center. We've got the flexibility to do something different. Go, a group of people go in a room and think about what would you do differently? How would you be a test bed for the future of the Medicare Shared Savings Program? And we kicked around a lot of ideas. We did attribution differently. We did benchmarking differently. We did different levels of risk. Um, and it was incredibly exciting because, I mean, we didn't know what would become of it, but the notion, we also knew <laughs> the other idea behind the Pioneer ACO was a, like it was going to take too long to get the Medicare Shared Savings Program started. So we're the innovation center. We'll get started quicker and we'll get out there and blaze a trail. As it worked out, I think we were out three or four months earlier <laughs> than the Medicare Shared Savings Program. So it's not like we got out much quicker. You didn't lap them. No. <laughs> I don't know if we underestimated right. their speed or overestimated our speed. Um, but it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of you know, thinking about what would it take to get people engaged um, to improve care. That's really interesting because I was um, I was in graduate school in 2011 to 2012, and we were discussing that exact same thing from an academic perspective <laughs> about looking at those numbers for Pioneer ACO. Like, what would that look like? You know, if you did it perfectly. Yeah. And uh, my personal intro to this concept was from Mark McClellan guest lecturing in one of my classes and talking through, and, and Mark McClellan, a former head of the uh, Food and Drug Administration and the Bush Administration, former head of CMS, he was at Brookings at the time, and he was talking about how you how you can structure that from a provider perspective, and I was lucky enough to be in that class, but I was also the only physician in the class, and so he and I really got into an in-depth discussion. I, at the time, I was a general surgery resident about how a bundle or an accountable structure, what we now call value-based care, would look like for somebody who was practicing general surgery out in the community. Mm. And it was really interesting. So, And I actually, uh, the, the last touch point I had at that early stage was part of a, a really unwieldy conference call with about 60 doctors um, who had a policy background. Uh, for one of the few jobs they had at CMMI at the time. So uh, I just saw like uh, sliding doors, like just the the very, uh, the, the, the edges of what you were doing then. And uh, it's really interesting to see where it's come to now and also to work in the private sector in that space. So um, there was a lot of discussion in the classroom at the time about how you would make that work. And so it sounds like you were having the same discussions. Absolutely. And it's funny you should mention bundles. Like there were a number of us, you know, we'd work all day and then we'd go out and have a couple of beers and we'd all agreed like, well, bundles are a slam dunk. Right. Like, that'll work. <laughs> right. And hopefully this ACO thing might catch on too, yeah. but like bundles is like yeah. the easy Get win. Yeah. And the truth has been the opposite, yeah. which is ACO has been very successful. Bundles, I still have faith in. I just think it's more complicated than we thought. Mm -hmm. But I do think bundles are part of our future. Um, but certainly hasn't been the success ACOs had yeah. to date. Yeah, I have a lot. I'd love to later in this talk more about bundles, particularly in the surgical subspecialty place cause I, the space, because I do think that that is, um, I thought the same thing in hearing it in the lectures. I'm like, that makes sense. Like a wraparound, uh, put it all in one box, and then seeing it from the policy side after grad school, um, so not the case, you know? So anyway, but we, we can get to that. Sure. So it obviously, ACO is an amazing idea. I personally find it amazing to be at a company that is really about manifesting an idea and bringing it 
to reality. Um, but given how you've seen it played out, are there things you wish you would have done differently? Oh, sure. There's definitely things I wish I would have done differently. Some of them have now been proposed by the current administration. Um, but, you know, here at Allidated, we I mean, we've been advocating for additional ideas. When, when the f idea first came up, I put myself back, uh, early in my career, I was the budget director of a hospital. And I was remembering how I would have reacted to the notion of an ACO then, which is, okay, there's going to be a budget. You'll tell me what that budget is after the year's over. <laughs> right. But I'm going to work towards that budget that I don't really know. Mm -hmm. And then you'll tell me after the fact how I did. And I sort of said, as a budget director, I would have laughed at that. And so there you are things like everybody who worked there take that as their own personal salary contract. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we'll let you know how you did. Yeah. Um, so I think the predictability of the revenue is the biggest challenge. Um, but it goes to um, the maxim I've always had. I've been in healthcare regulatory roles my whole life, which is I can give you fairness or I can give you simplicity. It's tough to do both. We there's quote a, you on that all the time. There's such a, a good line. There's a trade-off. And so, yeah, I can give you more predictable revenue as an ACO, but then you're going to come back to me and say, well, circumstances changed and I need that to change. And, I, and you might be right. And so... I don't know what the solution is, but I do think incrementally we are moving in the right direction. I think we made strides. I think some of what the current administration has proposed will move the ball in that regard too. Now, you said you really early on noticed, you and a group, um, that physician-led uh, independent providers were the ideal fit for this. Did you even think that hospitals would make a play in this space? Did you understand the issue of you know, facility fees and locking up practices? We thought there would be a subset of hospitals that would enter it in an altruistic and genuine way. We did not anticipate what you just described, which I do think has happened, which is hospitals mm -hmm. seeing an opportunity to lock up referral networks, mm -hmm. particularly taking advantage. So, you know, one of the things we tried to do early in the early years, it's a new idea, is to nurture people who came in, make the program welcoming to them, safe space, and that's why we provided a fairly generous period of no downside mm -hmm. risk. I didn't anticipate that some people would say, oh, that means I can get in, not really care about shared mm -hmm. savings, take advantage of some of the regulatory waivers that are offered, lock up referral networks. And even when people started coming to us and saying that was happening, when we looked at the data, what we saw was, well, yeah, hospitals are acquiring physicians, but that predated this, and there doesn't seem to be an inflection point. Mm -hmm. um, but what we didn't know is they they could engage in this without even accelerating the acquisition of, you know, mm -hmm. they could do it through, um, um, you know, through other arrangements. And so I, I do regret not having the foresight to yeah. see that. And as you were writing the rules, were there particular pressures? You know, I thought about that in particular, as you all are mentioning bundles, you know, part of the death of bundles was a, you know, particular HHS secretary who, mm -hmm. who had to be in his bonnet about it. Because he's an orthopedic surgeon. Yes, right, right, no coincidence. Price, yeah. um, were you feeling pushed one way or another? Or are these rules just so abstruse that you could sort of write them in peace? Um, there were always two, tens two tensions that we had to navigate. One was, um, one of the great joys of working CMS was getting to know the actuaries. One of the frustrations was that the actuaries are so good and so neutral that everybody trusts them. And so in all these models, there was an obsession with actuarial precision that I thought was too much. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, 
on the margins, we shouldn't care about the, you know the next tenth of a percent. Mm -hmm. But because there was so much respect for the actuaries, I think we leaned too far in that direction. The other thing was, remember, this program was a reaction to fee-for-service, but it wasn't the first reaction to fee-for-service incentives. There's enormous amount of payment rules and anti-fraud rules and everything structured around trying to prevent people from abusing fee-for-service and then convincing those same people, this isn't that world. We need to do things differently. We need to suspend those rules in this context. Mm -hmm. It was difficult. Um, so all the apparatus built up around fraud and abuse and program integrity, um, it was an educational process to bring them along, whether it was bundles or ACOs or anything where providers were going at risk. Like, you don't need to worry about those things anymore. Mm -hmm. Or you need to worry about them in a different way. And so every model, every step of the way, those two things were challenges we dealt with. That's interesting that, that CMS gives ACOs more trust. Yeah, though the, the compromise has really been that really the trust kicks in when they take downside risk. Yeah, yeah. There, there's not been an enormous amount of trust on the one side, mm -hmm. and in, in retrospect, probably that was wise, even though I was probably pushing for the other side of it. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, and I do, and I, I've said this in a testimony in Congress last year, like, there's a lot of rules in, in Medicare payment that people hate. But if you get people into sided risk, we can systematically begin revisiting them. Um, and, and I think the list is quite long. So maybe it's not so much that they give trust as that if you agree to accept risk, then you're in the same boat and they don't need to monitor it in the same way. Yeah. I mean, the problem, all this stuff is about overutilization. Mm -hmm. And if you're at risk and you literally might have to cut a check to the government if you overutilize a service, then they don't have to try to prevent it through regulation. If you can ever do anything through incentives as opposed to regulation, mm -hmm. do it through incentives. Mm -hmm. And this is spoken as someone who spent a career as a regulator. <laughs> and it sounds like you, you know, I, I just want to pause for a second on the political environment um, that a lot of this was occurring in. And I, um, another sort of odd sliding, maybe it's not odd because we now work at the same company and clearly <laughs> there aren't that many folks in this space, but. Um, when a lot of these regs were coming out, I was working for a Republican member of the Finance Committee. And uh, that was part of the team that was working on what became MACRA, but was the fail, the last failed doc fix bill that came through um, out of finance. And uh, the uh, sensitivity around Affordable Care Act created institutions and programs was a very, very real thing. Uh, my former boss in the Senate had a bipartisan bill built around annual wellness visits as an incentive program um, for uh, you know the Medicare Better Health Rewards program. Um, it was a Portman Wyden bill, and it came from a, from a program at the Cleveland Clinic in our home state of Ohio. And we either did not mention or had to be particularly apologetic that the annual wellness visit <laughs> as a completely non-controversial thing was an Affordable Care Act uh, creation. So I'm curious, writing regs around this, the political pressure at that time, um, or the political challenges must have been enormous. Yeah, in the early years of the Innovation Center, there was a lot of sensitivity about just that. Um, we were somewhat insulated. I mean, we weren't the exchanges. We weren't the more controversial part of it. 
And it played also played out in Congress, and this was a little bit bipartisan, somewhat ruining how much authority they had ceded to the Innovation Center mm-hmm. um, and funding, because in addition to having a lot of authority, the Innovation Center is on a 10-year funding cycle. Mm-hmm. So you'll recall when the government shut down, right. periodically, little known fact was Innovation Center employees still reported to work because we had a 10-year appropriation. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a tension around Republican, Democrat, pro, con, ACA, but there's also a legislative executive branch tension which I always knew, I always knew the Republican-Democrat thing would be resolved as soon as the Republicans took over the administration and they realized, <laughs> oh, it's kind of cool to have an innovation center. Right. And now it's our innovation center, not theirs. But I think the longstanding tension will remain executive versus legislative. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I would say we probably trimmed our sails as far as ambition from time to time just to not, you know, draw mm-hmm. too much ire. Um and, you know, the, in the long run, though, as your experience shows, the support for value-based care is bipartisan. I always say, if you're a member of Congress, this is offering you a way to save the trust funds. It doesn't involve raising taxes, doesn't involve cutting benefits, you know, which Congress hates doing. I don't think value-based care alone is going to be sufficient, but I think they're all desperately hopeful it will be part of the solution. Yeah, I I have given that same speech as I've done recruiting where people say I'm concerned that in the current political environment without getting wading too much into politics, um, anything ACA linked, including ACOs, including all these things, are uh, live in perpetual danger, you know, of a, a red line repeal type of thing. Um, and certainly I don't think that's the case for a lot of very good reasons, including MACRA um, and the bipartisan support. But the second line of that, and I can speak having been in the room to talk about um, the promotion of downside, two-sided risk was our retreat point, uh, I can say, without giving too much away into how that those bills were written, because they were bipartisan, you know, macro is a bipartisan uh, legislation, but even in the back room, uh, the literal back room of the Republican staff for finance, uh, it was, don't worry, we have a two-sided risk mechanism built into this. Uh, and the other thing I would say, I say when I give my, my version of that speech uh, to folks, is that there are so few savers, even tiny savers, built in, as you alluded to. And so, you know, an, an analog of this uh, that's not directly related, certainly, but that it plays in for our practices and, and delivery of our services, uh, competitive bidding for for. DME, you know, it's it's a very controversial program that we could do a whole podcast on alone, but it saves money, and it's really hard to find offsets if you're going to take a saver off the table. Yeah, that's probably a rabbit hole we don't want to go down. <laughs> competitive bidding for DME, but when I when we did the first, you know, the first actuary's estimate of the reg that started us down the path for competitive DME, the act this is a an area at the time, CMS was spending about $10 billion a year, and the actuaries were forecasting that over 10 years, the competitive bidding would save $10 billion on a benefit that's only $10 billion in any individual year. Um, I don't think the ACO program that affects yeah. 10 million people a year has achieved that. Um, so yeah, it, it is hard to get savers. It also leads to a discussion, though. CMS recently released data and said, ACOs are saving money, and some people said, oh, that's great. And other people said, 
yeah, but it's not the silver bullet it was supposed to be. Right. And I first of all, I said, I don't remember even Mark McClellan saying it was a silver bullet. Mm-hmm. So first of all, it's a false comparison. But what else do we have? Like, you know, it is the most successful delivery system reform. Compare it to, for example, Medicare Advantage, which has twice the membership, and actually, since its inception, has always cost Medicare more money. Um, and if you do that comparison, it's you know a tremendous success and hugely popular. Medicare Advantage, you know, absolutely. You know, that is a, a a great you know driver of any sort of value program. This also will help uh, people listening understand. Uh, why the next presidential infidelity scandal is going to be with a CMMI employee <laughs> because during the, the next shutdown that's who's going to be wandering the White House yeah. the only one still standing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> having been a, a quote unquote essential employee during a shutdown there's not much going on although I have the, the un, unlike unlucky distinction of having been an essential employee uh, during the government shutdown and having jury duty at the same time. So, like, a double civic duty playing out. So I think I should get some sort of merit badge or something uh, for that. I was not an essential employee, but I was a mandatory appropriation. There you <laughs> like go, or, right. Or a multi-year appropriation. Right. Less special, but uh, I still got to go to work. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about public sector stuff, Sean, which is um, uh, one of my favorite things to discuss uh, given uh, you know our shared background in this, but now that we're in the private sector at the same company working on these uh, heady, you know, challenging issues, what do you see as the biggest challenge here in trying to get providers to implement accountable care on the private sector side? Really, in my mind, they fall into two buckets. One is the the daily life of a physician, particularly in a small practice. What is he or she dealing with? And they have certain workflows and like way of doing business or running their practice that you really have to fit seamlessly into. Um, so finding interventions that you can slip in and it really hits the physician as this is the kind of stuff I want to do. It feels right. And we think it will generate savings. Um, that sweet spot, I think we've found it at times, but I think we constantly are looking for what else fits into that sweet spot. Because if you go in and tell a physician, all right, your life is now completely different, you're going to practice completely differently, mm-hmm. you lose them right away. Like, and, and if you can't convince them that it's good for the f- patient, like this is better for the patient, yeah. um, you lose them right away. And so, you know, and Joe, you're right in the middle of this, and Josh too, like that's 90% of what people at Allidate are sitting around mm-hmm. thinking about. What can we have the physicians do that fits into their current workflow that's not incredibly, you know, asking them to spend three more hours at the office um, that will be benefit the patient and generate savings? Um, the other thing is what we call the antibodies, like the reaction. Like, so you set up an ACO and they start working well. And what we've seen is sometimes the environment around them reacts whether it's specialist physicians or hospitals, they do things as any organization or economic thing entity would do to try to survive, to try to maintain their um, revenue. So, you know, we always say primary care physicians control nothing but influence everything, mm-hmm. uh, but not controlling things is tough. And so you're going to see hospitals and others, you know, in, in their attempt to maintain their revenue, working sometimes counter to the interest of our physicians, but also our physicians' patients, and that's a challenge. 
And what about the the complexity involved in the program? Like, what do you what do you see as the challenges? I, I completely agree in making this palatable and simplified, but it's an inherently complex entity. Setting up an ACO, being part of an ACO. Um, so I, I have two parts to this. One, how do those challenges play out directly from your perspective? And then, what do we do here to limit those or make it more uh, uh, reasonable for docs? Yeah, so when I was in that room, as I said, back in 2011, and we had the epiphany that primary care physician to go, the two limiting factors we thought of were, one, would they have any capital? Like, do they have any spare cash around to hire the care manager to do the analytics and do the things they needed? Um, and two, did they have the time and the brain space to understand the complexity of the program. Um, frankly, at that time, I had not, and so we were worried, oh, they won't have either of those things and they'll all flock to hospital-based ACOs. I hadn't thought of organizations like Allidate that could relieve them of those burdens, um, that could do the analytics for them, that could explain the complexity. Um, I do think, I mean, I think it's good for Allidate, I think it's good for physicians. In a perfect world, um, there would be a better pathway for physician mm -hmm. groups to do it, and it wouldn't be as complex. We did try to answer the capital question. We created two models that I was associated with, one advanced payment model and the other AIM. And I always forget what AIM stood for. But essentially, they were both trying to seed, provide seed capital mm -hmm. for small ACOs that we thought could be successful, but that might need help getting over that hump. Well, Sean, that was a, a really interesting uh, rundown of some of the challenges we face in, in doing this and really achieving value-based care. But even in saying value-based care, I realized that uh, that can mean different things to different people, and it's something we've been talking with every guest on the show about. Um, how do you define value-based care, and, and how do you think about that? I think it's a great question because the more we use a term like that, the more it has opportunities to come become debased and have no meaning or have, uh, fit every meaning, in which case it's not that useful. When I think about this, I go back to the example of my father who, um, I guess it's four or five years ago now, um, suddenly, he he's, was 85 at the time, he's 90 now, um, started having a series of illnesses that were very mysterious, visiting multiple specialists um, who were all not sure what was wrong with him. And then started getting worse, weakness in his legs, and he was collapsing and rushed to the hospital um, repeatedly. The hospitalist trying different interventions, floating different diagnoses, but never really figuring out what was wrong with him. Um, the other thing I should tell you is part of this story is my father is one of those guys who carries around his list of medications <laughs> with him. You know, and if you like meet him in the park, he's going to show you his list of medications. <laughs> I think any physician knows that person really well. <laughs> um, so my father was doing that, like every physician, he was shoving this in front of their face and you know, in and out of the hospital where they, you know, by standards, do medication reconciliation and medication reviews. But it wasn't getting better. And in fact, one hospital, they even spoke to my mother about, you need to start planning for the end. Hmm. And my parents are very open to having that discussion, except if no one knows what's going on, it yeah. seemed a little weird to be having that discussion. Um, so I finally... And the other frustrating factor of this was at that time, their son was the head of Medicare. <laughs> so seemingly could provide some useful assistance, but really was, I was flummoxed. I didn't know what to do. And I finally just called a friend and said, 
I feel like what my father needs is a doctor to sit down and not see him for eight minutes and pass him on and write a, either a prescription or pass him on to a specialist, but to just sit there and listen to his story, figure out what the hell is going on. Hmm. So we did that, like through this connection of ours, um, ultimately got him in front of a geriatrician who actually even more miraculously came to my parents' house, hmm. sat down with my father, spent an hour, and a, more than an hour, hour and a half with my father. Um, the big result of that was that he threw out half of my father's medications. Hmm. Um, my father was really excited. He really liked the guy. They got along. But I called the doctor. And oh, so that was three years ago. My father's never been back to the hospital, wow. never hmm. been back to the emergency room. The symptoms he had disappeared. I called the doctor and I said, I, I just need to know, like, what did you learn that no one else learned? And he said, I have to be frank. I'm not exactly sure what was wrong with your father. Hmm. To this day, I, you know, it was mystifying. I said, well, but what about all those medications? Clearly you saw a problem there. And he said, well, you know, I did review them and there were a number he shouldn't take. And I said, well, I'm not a clinician, but can you give me an example? And he said, well, your father was still taking statins. And I was like, I know, isn't that great? You know, like, everybody's supposed to take their statins. <laughs> And he said, no, your father's 85. You're supposed to stop taking statins when you're 75. They're, it's, you know, it's not good anymore. In fact, one of the side effects post-75 is that it can cause muscle weakness. Mm -hmm. And one of, my father's symptoms, one of my father's many symptoms, to be fair, was muscle weakness. He collapsed several times because he felt like suddenly his legs gave out. Um, so it's not that this physician had an insight that other physicians didn't have. But he probably stumbled on the problem, which was some mixture of these medications that were no longer needed and may have, in fact, have been harming my father. Um, but so going back, this is a long-winded way of answering your question, going back to value-based mm -hmm. care. Clearly what he was experiencing prior to that was not value-based care. It was episodic, like I passed the buck type mm -hmm. care. I've done my billable visit. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they were all sincere, talented clinicians who were in an environment where I got seven minutes or whatever the time is, I gotta figure this out. Ha, this is a tough one. I'll send him to Dr. So-and-so or hmm. I'll admit him to the hospital, mm -hmm. maybe they have. And just no one was clinically and financially invested in saying, you know what, this one needs more time. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna step out of my normal day and figure this out and not pass him along. And probably the answer was right in front of all of them on a piece of paper in my father's pants pocket. Um, which was his list of medications. Whereas, and to be honest, I'm not sure the geriatrician was in value-based care. He probably lost a ton of money sitting with my father for an hour and a half and billing $62 or whatever mm -hmm. Medicare paid him. But I think of anything that clinically and financially supports that, that doctor or nurse practitioner of spending the time and feeling invested in not passing my father through, but resolving or ameliorating or really addressing what the underlying problem is. That is value-based care. It can take a lot of forms and you see a lot of experimentation going out, but that's the ultimate test. Mm. So I think we've learned that the, the best care system to be in is value-based care and the second best is if you're in the fee-for-service world that your your son be in charge of Medicare. <laughs> <laughs> I get wish it. that were true, but I, 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 I used to discouraged my father. My father's like, I told Dr. So-and-so my son runs Medicare. Oh, no. And I said, 
you know, I'm glad you're proud, but he's not going to be proud of me. <laughs> right. He's probably got a list of complaints. Uh -huh. <laughs> so you might want to stop mentioning yeah. that. But I was never successful in getting him to stop mentioning that. Probably slightly better than being the CEO of an EHR company. <laughs> I can only imagine. I, you know, uh, I spend more time in doctors' offices now as a patient. Um, now that I'm a, um, or the family of a patient. Now that I have two kids and one on the way, and the discussions I have about uh, electronic health records dominate that. I can only, I can't imagine there'd be space for, to be the Medicare director when, when you're complaining about system XYZ and the, the workflows that it creates. So um, thanks for sharing that though, Sean. That's really, uh, it definitely brings it home. And you shared that uh, shortly after you joined Allidate as well, right? As a, a, a written post. Yeah, I did a blog for the Allidate website um, because it was top of mind and it had a lot to do with my job search, frankly. Mm. like I felt like, okay, we were in Medicare at sort of a 40,000-foot level trying to encourage a certain type of care and a certain form of payment. You know, I wanted to continue that work in some regard, and Allidate just seemed like a really great fit, and I liked that they were working directly with primary care and independent primary care, the people who can be most aligned um, professionally with that type of care. Yeah, so exactly along those lines, you know, you came from the world of the creation of accountable care organizations, the regulations. Any big surprises joining a company like Allidate or even just seeing how it plays out on the ground compared to what you thought was going to happen? Yeah, the surprise isn't just from coming from my governmental position, but also my history. I worked for a hospital system. I had been a hospital regulator. I had done a lot of work with hospitals and so thought I knew physicians, but what I learned coming to Allidate is I really had not a lot of insight into how physician practices really run and what the life of an independent mm -hmm. physician really is. And it's been eye-opening and great um, and, and it's helped me in my, you know, in life outside of work understanding what these physicians are going through. Um, but really understanding, and particularly the burden. Like, I had sort of a sense of it in government, and we started an initiative to reduce burden. We did not, frankly, get very far, to be completely honest. Um, but now I see how important that is. I, think, I look at our doctors and talk to our doctors, and I swear if you gave our doctors a choice of we can give you more money or more time, they would take the time every, mm -hmm. every time. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has surprised me about coming to a company like Allied is learning that there's somebody on the other side of the ledger. I think people who've been in the healthcare finance world longer than I have would not be surprised that the saying is something like one person's healthcare savings is somebody else's loss of revenue. And, and I hadn't expected that. You know, that uh, healthcare being 18% of the GDP of this country, that when we're trying to make changes, we really come against people who, um, who really are counting on the status quo to pay their bills. Um, you know, what's your sense of how far we can go to change the system given that, given all the entrenched interests? Yeah, I appreciate that question because I just came from speaking on a panel and my co-panelist was a woman who runs an ACO, so value-based care, all the right incentives, mm -hmm. except she's in a large health system. Mm -hmm. She told the story of working with her primary care doctors around how do we reduce unnecessary ED utilization, keep people out of the emergency room if they don't need to be there. And they came up, she didn't go into the clinical side of it, but she said she came up with a great plan. That, primary care physicians were really excited. They're like, we can make a change here. And then she went to talk to the facilities that all work for the same system as her. And they're like, you're going to do what? Mm -hmm. I mean, she said this publicly. They said, 
no, the same CEO that created you also gave me an ED revenue target this mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, I don't hit my revenue target. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the reality of what we're dealing with here. So the question to me, and this has long been my question dealing with hospitals, do you change the world by banging your head against the hospital, like trying to get the hospitals to change, or do you change the world around the hospitals? Mm -hmm. And I think what I like about here is we're starting with that, like until the hospitals get it, we're changing the world around them. Like you know, the primary care independent physicians is the place to do that. That's fascinating uh, that she was willing to say that publicly. Um, I know when I was doing, and you probably had some of these same experiences, that when I was doing my due diligence before joining Allidaid, because I had worked on the government side, on the periphery, not nearly as deep as, as you were on accountable care and ACOs and things like that, um, that I talked to somebody that I knew who was a uh, uh, government relations, head government relations person for a, a very large hospital system without naming them and uh, their response was oh that's interesting but ACOs don't work because they saw it from the perspective mm -hmm. of a system with those inherent tensions um, you know fortunately I did enough digging to say uh, to myself well that may not work you know that and maybe it will down the road when we sort of shift those incentives around but um, yeah, I think that there's a, definitely an inherent tension there, uh, which is you know something that we'll reckon with, you know, uh, on our side, but also the the government will as well. Um, well, and, your friend wasn't wrong. The data to date shows mm -hmm. the hospital-based ACOs are not producing results, mm -hmm. but the physician-based ACOs are. I don't think that's tenable in the long run. Like, if we're really going to transform our mm -hmm. health system at some point, the hospitals have to be bought in and have to be part of it. But for the for the near future, it's the community-based physicians that I think are the catalysts for change. Were you surprised at all to see the uh, granularity on the part of the government agencies? And by that I mean to be able to sift out and say, okay, ACOs, you know, uh, we'll take a step back. Um, I'm always frustrated when people talk about healthcare as a monolith, you know, that um, healthcare spending or healthcare this, I mean, yes, you know, 18% of GDP, that's a huge chunk. But like when you say healthcare, it means so many different things. Is that biopharma? Is that devices? Is that mm -hmm. hospitals? Is that independent physicians? Um, but even within the accountable care ACO world, um, to get that data back fairly recently, that they sifted it out, um, what do you think that speaks to in terms of from the, the, the regulator's perspective? It was a big part of how we thought about the world. When I started at the Innovation Center back in 2011, we had brought in you know, really top-notch evaluation people, really top-notch learning and diffusion people, and both of them had no interest in the average. Like, mm -hmm. don't tell me what the mm -hmm. average is. I want to see the whole distribution. I want to understand cross-sections. Like, the average is the most, you know, sure, you're going to put it in the press release or whatever, but as far as spreading a model, learning from a model, the average doesn't tell you anything. You really need to. And that was, people were like, what did the Innovation Center do with that $10 billion? Mm -hmm. We didn't spend it all on evaluation, but we spent a lot on evaluation. It's probably the smartest money we spent because we did incredibly deep, both quantitative and qualitative evaluations. Yeah, I love the, I had a um, professor in graduate school, Uwe Reinhardt, who uh, recently passed away, who used to 
uh, hammer people about that average discussion. You know, used to give absurd examples about putting one hand in a uh, bucket of boiling hot water and one hand in the bucket of ice water and on average are you warm no (laughs) right you know you're you're miserable either way um so he was an economist so he he poked a lot of fun at economists with that when i was very young hill staffer just learning about healthcare, uva reinhardt used to come testify and brief our committee and not only was he incredibly insightful but as Mm -hmm. you know he was very funny very funny and i thought oh great i'm gonna get into healthcare, and it's gonna be funny and it turns out he was the only funny person in healthcare. I think that's true. One of my favorite Uwe Reinhardt uh, things that he would do when he was speaking, uh, particularly on panels, is uh, he taught a finance course. So he ended up, he was on a lot of boards, he did a lot of finance work. Then he was born in Germany. Uh, and so he was, uh, German was his first language. And when he would be on a finance committee or a finance panel, let's say, and uh, financial folks would use acronyms and terms that weren't, you know, uh, understandable to the average person. He would respond to them in German, <laughs> and they would say, "I'm sorry, I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about." And he would say, "No one understands what you're talking about." <laughs> uh, and it, 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 to make the point that it's that opaque, um, particularly after the financial crisis, which is when I was in uh, graduate school in his in his class, he made that point. Uh, ardently, and I think it was a really good one that um, to use terms. We have the same problem in healthcare. You know, that's why we've asked everybody to talk about what value-based care means to them, because uh, you have to uh, talk about these things in a way that's approachable. You know, for everyone. Um, do one more Uve story. Go for it. Um, one of my jobs earlier in my career, I was the deputy director of the Maryland Hospital Rate Setting Commission. So, like, that's a sexy job. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> um, but from an ideological perspective, it couldn't be more like state regulation mm-hmm. of, at the individual price level, like everything that conservatives would hate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was never an advocate for spreading it to the whole country or anything, but it was a great little experiment. And the founder of it was a really brilliant economist named Hal Cohen, who was a close friend of mine, and he was a close friend of Uwe Reinhardt. And at Hal Cohen's retirement party, Uwe Reinhardt came up and gave a long, funny speech but he also, that year, had been presented by some conservative group, the Hoot Smalley Award for Worst Economic Idea of the Year. Uh-huh. And he said, but if they knew Hal Cohen, I know they would have given it to him. So he transferred the award <laughs> to Hal Cohen. That is fantastic. Um, I would encourage anybody listening to go back and look at um, columns that Professor Reinhardt wrote in the New York Times. He used to do uh, an economics column on healthcare and many other things. Um, but a really talented writer, uh, fantastic guy. I'm glad that you knew him a little bit as well. Uh, I know Farzad also is uh, friendly with, with Uve. Um, well, Sean, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, we learned a lot um, and uh, really excited to get the chance to work with you every day. And, and, and thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Yeah, it's fun. Thanks, guys.